On this week's episode of A Little Weird Podcast, I'm joined by special guest Father John O'Brien. Together, we discuss a statement by Marshall McLuhan, the famous Canadian philosopher of communication, where he says, the medium is the message. In this episode, we discuss what this means for media literacy as we proceed forward as Catholics in digital times. Hi there, welcome to A Little Wayward Podcast coming out of St. Therese Institute of Faith and Mission. My name is Nick and joining me today is Father John O'Brien. How are you, Father John? Well, doing great. Yeah, great to be here. Great to be at the St. Therese Institute for Faith and Mission. Yeah, Yeah. so um, you're joining us today because uh, you've been with us for a little while now, um, just doing some retreats for the students and um, mm. Uh, some chaplaincy, even uh, impromptu, uh, in this time of COVID. Um, why, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, just so the audience knows, uh, people listening in, sorry, um, wh wh who you are and uh, what you do. Sure, sure. Well, my day job is as the vocations director for the Jesuits of Canada, mm -hmm. so the Society of Jesus, uh, the Canadian province. And so uh, it's, a, it's a great role. It affords me a lot of opportunities to kind of go around the country and do things like retreats, um, retreats in the Ignatian tradition and, uh, and other, other pastoral or ministerial things. Uh, so part of that was being on the um, itinerary or the calendar for St. Mm -hmm. Therese and uh, doing a five-day silent Ignatian retreat with the students here, which we've done before, we try and do every year. Mm -hmm. uh, but because it's the COVID year, what was originally just going to be five days has turned into four wonderful weeks. Um, <laughs> back in Ontario, where I'm from, the uh, province went into not just a lockdown, but a, a stay-at-home order mm. since uh, March. So it, uh, it didn't make a lot of, or I should say positively, it made more sense to be out somewhere not Ontario. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the Institute invited me just to stay on after the retreat and as you say, do chaplaincy work here. Uh, I was very delighted, and it's been a delightful, delightful four weeks here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah, know, and it's been great having you, um, having you over as well. The, the students really appreciated it. Mm -hmm. We're actually filming this right after commissioning, yeah. actually, so a lot of the students have gone home already, yeah. and uh, now we're beginning to wind things down. So we thought we'd record a podcast or two with you in the meantime, um, just, uh, just to get some fresh blood uh, in, uh, on the podcast. So um, the topic that we were thinking, we, we, we threw a few around, and so we're going to do a couple podcasts. Um, but one particular topic came up, which was um, something called media literacy. Mm. Um, so uh, you've done a lot of thinking about uh, particularly like digital media, and, um, and, uh, and you've taught even a few courses kind of connecting to this and stuff like that. Um, so I, it would be, I thought it would be good to kind of just talk about it and see where the conversation goes. Um, so when you, we say like something like media literacy, what would you kind of peg that as, uh, Father John? Yeah, well, I, I would first and foremost peg it as almost, if it's not too uh, grandiose or exaggerated to say, um, one of the issues of our time. Mm. As a priest, uh, you hear a lot of confessions and counseling and spiritual direction and, and just informal conversations about being a Christian, about the spiritual life, about having a prayer life. And it always seems to boil down to a, a conflict in people's lives between their screens 
and their yeah. spirituality, as if it's a as if it's a line in a war or a battle or something. There's so there's all the psychological effects of the screens in our lives that we that we can consider. And I think most people have a, a growing sense that there's a tension in their lives between mm. between these devices, between these technologies, which are not exactly neutral, mm. um, yeah. and which are uh, creating forms of addiction, we know that, and also, if not straight out addiction, they're just creeping more and more and taking up more hours of our day in ways that aren't necessarily fruitful, productive, um, in ways that are distracting, in ways that are fragmenting, mm. and that uh, seem strangely to be in conflict with our deeper desires uh, of our hearts, of our souls, for contemplation, and mm. for prayer, and for that side of our being. So it's not, it's not a completely antagonistic relationship because there's a lot of good that comes across the internet too, and even yep. ways in which um, prayer and readings and scripture and reflection and the kind of the content for meditation can be transmitted to us through various platforms online, but Nonetheless, I think it's largely a, a confrontational relationship, hmm. screens and spirituality. Yeah, and I, I think we can, uh, this is very experiential and even on the ground. Um, for example, I've got like daily gospel reflections coming into my inbox and my email account. Um, but on the other hand, um, with my phone, like there's a little ding for a text or something like that and social media there. Um, and the amount of times where I find myself attendant to the ding and it interrupts something I'm doing and takes me completely out of um, meditation for on the, in the moment of what I am in. Uh, but even during prayer time or something like that, um, I'll hear a buzz and all of a sudden my entire zone is off. Mm -hmm. um, so what, um, how would you begin kind of navigating, looking at media? And I'm assuming you're meaning mostly like social media um, and such like this, or are you meaning kind of more general, like just the internet in general, or um, is this more broad or more specific um, in your view? Well, it can be as broad or as specific as you like. I think there is, there's a broader set of questions hmm. that concern like the human relationship with technology okay. in general. That goes way back to the Greek philosophers. Oh yeah, yeah. Or it can be modern technology in general. So let's look at like how humanity changed its relationship with, with its technology, the things it was able to engineer in modern times, and how that might have been different from how our ancestors may have related to, uh, to the world, to nature, to creation. Uh, and then there is certainly more specific sets of questions that we can ask about the internet and then about the social media platforms that uh, do tend to gobble up a lot of people's time, although not exclusively. Also, there's a heck of a lot of entertainment consumption as well. Yeah, that's true. So that's yeah. another approach of uh, analysis that you can make. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So media in this sense would be basically everything that is mediating something to us um, via technology nowadays. Um, or every days, really, because we've never been in a period of time maybe where we haven't had a form of mediation. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking um, even when it was oral cultures, um, oral traditions are a form of mediation or something like that. So that would even be kind of contained in there or? Absolutely, yeah. And that, so that's kind of the broader approach to the question of technology and communications. And uh, uh, yeah, it brings us maybe to 
Marshall McLuhan, the, the great Canadian Catholic philosopher of communication, who, mm. whose approach was very broad, and he, he looked at all of history, and he looked at how um, human civilization was based upon its, its technologies, its discoveries. Uh, so if you're an agricultural society, you've probably discovered you know, tools like the pitchfork, the shovel, and the hoe, and then later mm -hmm. the plow, and then, and then how their entire cultures would be based around those very primitive technologies. And then um, flip things over into communication. Well, uh, you're an oral culture that does not write things down much. Mm -hmm. And so there's a great premium placed upon memory, so the memorization of, of, uh, of, of uh, cultural wisdom that can be yeah. transmitted through oral accounts and, um, and even the sagas and myths and legends and stories that define the culture would be told around campfires or uh, you know, gatherings of various kinds. And you know, King's courts always had the bard or the, you know, mm, these figures yeah. whose job it was to remember all this stuff. Mm -hmm. To tell the tales. Yes, um, yeah, that defined a people. And even mythologize at times as well, sure. yeah. yeah. Yes, and, and the, but then you do have writing, the invention of, um, of, uh, of the ability to, well, first of all, a language creates an alphabet and then an alphabet creates written words and, and the ability, the technology to record them, you know, we have, ancient uh, writing on clay tablets. That's essentially the yeah. oldest medium that we have for writing. And, uh, and then later papyrus, and then later vellum, you know, the, the, uh, on lambskin or sheepskin. And then uh, eventually you have the discovery of paper and uh, ink. And uh, finally, in the 1500s, you have Gutenberg mm. uh, inventing the printing press, which was another revolution. Mm -hmm. And with each of these, oh, and then, of course, after the printing press, you get into the electronic media. The uh, yeah, you, media. you start getting, like, the radio, the television, and yeah. then now we have the Internet, um, which yeah. is more recent. Yeah. And according to Marshall McLuhan, like, each of those inventions caused, like, a quantum shift or leap in not just the ability of a culture to communicate and record, but also in its constitution as a society. Hmm. Yeah, okay. he really believed that technology, especially communications technology, well, he had that famous phrase, the medium is the message. Yeah, that's a loaded one, yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, and he, he also coined the term global village. That comes from... Oh, I didn't know that, McLuhan actually. as well. There's actually, yeah. he used to, he supposedly liked to pun off of his own words quite a bit, too. So he sometimes would even say, the, uh, the medium is the massage. Um, that was a typo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in the, in the cover, it was going to be the cover, uh, the cover of one of his books was supposed to be the medium is the message. Uh, but for some reason, the typesetters misspelled it, so medium is the massage. And he liked, <laughs> he liked it so much, he said, ah, just keep it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, um, that's kind of like, if there's anything Marshall McLuhan's really known for, it's precisely that statement. Um, and I assume there's a lot of like discussion about what he exactly meant by that. Um, but how, how would you kind of summarize what he's really trying to say with that uh, very simple one-liner? Which apparently he did a lot of. He did a lot of these one-liners that would yeah. pull people in and get them asking questions. Yeah, he, he kind of founded, you might say, the idea of communications as a field of study. Hmm. Because he wasn't, like he, was, he himself wasn't trained in that. There were no such programs of, um, of study. He was actually trained in literature. Okay. He was a literature professor. And so he, his classes at the University of Toronto, 
University of St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto, um, were, were largely sort of narrative-based, you know, the study of texts and of stories. But he himself liked to deliver, he liked to provoke thought. Hmm. And he would meet informally, often with students. In fact, they didn't, the university didn't understand what he was doing, so they kind of gave him this old shed called the <laughs> coach house. It's still there. It's right behind the Jesuit offices where my vocations office oh, is so located today. Oh, so have you today. been in the coach house oh, yeah. quite a bit? And, oh, I have, oh. yeah, yeah. They, the university kind of preserves it now. But um, his manner of discourse, and he would go on television, he was on the Johnny Carson show, he was on the cover of Time magazine. Like For a while in the 60s and the 70s, he was kind of a celebrated professor uh, whose uh, new approach to the, our understanding of media was, uh, was provoking a lot of new thought. And his style was to kind of shoot these one-liners out there. Mm -hmm. He called them probes, actually. That was his term for his own way of saying, little pithy sayings that would uh, somehow get you to think and, and get discussions going and start thinking about things in different ways. So my understanding of his phrase, the medium is the message, which was one of his probes, mm -hmm. was, uh, was this. It was that typically we think of media or of, let's say, the technology that um, that uh, permits our human communication, so the telegraph, the telephone, and now it's like the cell phone, email. We tend to think of those as neutral technologies mm -hmm. that are merely that which is carrying almost objectively and dispassionately content, so the, mm. the information of the communication from point A to point B. Yeah. Point A, person A to so, point B. So sort of like the mediating thing is kind of almost nihilistic in kind of what it gives. It doesn't really give anything to the process. It's typically how we think about it. Technology is just technology. Okay. It, it has no, it has very little impact on the content. It's a carrier only, mm -hmm. a medium only. What McLuhan is saying is, uh-uh, that's not the case at all. Hmm. The medium is the message, is a perhaps exaggerated way of saying, the medium itself is constitutive of its message. Okay. It determines the message, oh. much, at least much more than we think it does. Okay. So when you, and like um, you say, it's a bit exaggerated. So obviously um, it's yeah. not maybe fully all the way, but there is something about it, something about the way it's done um, that actually influences the very way you hear the content and interpret the content or assimilate it as well. Um, Perceive it. Um, a great example that's often uh, brought up in communication studies was the political debate between uh, Nixon and Kennedy. Okay. Because it took place in the 60s, obviously, when there was both radio was still fairly, fairly common and prominent, but television had been ascending as well. And so the presidential debates were being broadcast both on radio and on television. Hmm. Now, Nixon had the more radio-friendly voice, arguably, okay, and was a seasoned politician. Kennedy was a little more glamorous as a person visually. Moreover, uh, during this debate, Nixon had refused any makeup. Oh, <laughs> you know, okay. like you go on TV, sometimes they dust you so so there's no glare, that kind of thing. Nixon had said no. Kennedy had said sure. So, uh, what what? Um, 
observers and analysts noticed when they polled audiences after this great debate was that those who had heard it on the radio thought mm. that Nixon had won the debate. Intriguing. Those who had seen it on television thought that Kennedy had won the debate. Oh. So you can see where that's going. It's sort of illustrating, well, the medium does matter. It, it affects human perceptions. Hmm. Uh, we're not dispassionate um, viewers in a sort of completely um, objective way. Okay. And, and the medium that's bearing you or bearing the content or bearing the message is also determining it. Hmm. It's almost like um, you can, we, we all like to say, for example, think that if someone was speaking a sentence to us, that whether they said it um, calmly or angrily, we would be able to assess the content um, apart from that. But if you, if, for example, um, someone is speaking to me angrily saying, hey, Nick, go do that thing, um, I will actually interpret that more as an attack. Um, and I will even, the content, the way I, I assimilate it will be a problem or something. Um, yes. There's a writer who once said, uh, people don't really remember what you say to them so much as how you made them feel when you said it. Yeah. There's a deeper memory and perhaps call it the emotional register within. So transpose that to the media themselves. How do we feel, you might say, when we're consuming content on on podcasts, say, versus, uh, versus um, reading the printed, on the printed page. Hmm. Yeah, versus uh, you know, television, radio, you name it. So, or a live, hearing a person speak live versus recorded. Like it matters, the difference. Uh, perhaps as a teacher, you're, you're aware of this too, just the difference between teaching live. Hmm. You're the medium, a human being, speaking to a classroom of, of other human beings versus the question, well, why don't you just record all your lectures and throw them on YouTube <laughs> and then let your students listen to them at their leisure? Mm. Why don't we do that? Why do we still have the, 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 the classroom experience? Mm. Well, no, that's, uh, that's very good because um, I had the, uh, uh, the, well, the only word that's coming to hand is privilege, but I'm not sure if it was totally a privilege or not, of teaching in class this year, um, but I also had the privilege or opportunity to teach online for a little bit of time, um, just via Zoom or something like that. Mm. And I found that even the way I conducted myself on those mediums changed um, in presenting information. Um, and I found that, um, you know, it was funny because some students who listen really, really well in class expressed exceptional difficulty um, with the Zoom format. Mm. Whereas some students who were falling asleep in class all the time found the Zoom format totally captivating for wow. one reason or another. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if I got much more succinct on Zoom or not. Maybe that. Maybe I'm a little more verbose in class. Um, so, but no, I, I've, I've noticed that myself. Um, even uh, I have recorded things and given them to students, and it's, it's not quite the same, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so, no, I, I think that the medium is the message. Um, there's something really to be considered there. Um, so in terms of like our media literacy or coming to um, understand how to treat our media today, um, you have kind of known about this for a little while now, haven't you? And um, where, where has it kind of taken you with considering our current, um, our current more digital media and uh, you know, even down to things like television and stuff like that. Um, 
How, how, how have you kind of seen this track through your life and how has it influenced your view on these things? Yeah, okay. Well, I, I think I would trace it to stories my mother told me uh, when I was okay. a boy. Uh, the town that she grew up in was in British Columbia in the, in the Rocky Mountains, actually kind of this area where a few of the ranges of mountains were converging. And because of its geographic location, this town was the last town in North America to get television reception. Mm -hmm. Didn't get it till the 70s, like almost 20 years after pretty much the rest of uh, North America had. And so she had this, this personal and historical memory of what town life was like before television, hmm. what people were like, what social interactions were like. And, um, and then obviously when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, like she knew what our society had become. And so she'd often hearken back to her childhood, which would have been um, the 50s and the 60s. And it intrigued me. And then um, I learned as well that when that town was finally getting television, researchers from the University of British Columbia went up there. Hmm. They said, okay, this is for sociological research, this is, this is gold. Because uh, what they knew and what my mother had told me was that uh, this little town, it was a little blue collar town in the mountains, a bit of mining, a bit of forestry, a bit of farming in that area. But its schools were producing some of the top academic scores in the country. Really? Of Canada. Yeah. Uh, this little town was just kind of outperforming the rest of the nation <laughs> uh, on all these measures, literacy, math, you know, everything. So when the, uh, when the researchers went up, they went up shortly before the government built these uh, relay towers to get television signals up there and just studied, studied everything town dynamics, uh, what were the social events that characterized the town. Again, my mother told me a lot about all the festivals and fairs and sports days and mm. all the communitarian activities that went on there. And then the researchers went up two years later after television had arrived in the town and uh, did all the same tests. And then they wrote a book about it and it's still considered kind of a gold standard book on sociological research. Hmm. But um, probably can see where this is going. <laughs> Within two years, the, um, the academic performance of the schools, the elementary schools, and they, it had all gone back down to kind of the national average, hmm. what, what might ex one might expect for a Canadian town of that size and location and, and so on. Uh, moreover, moreover, the researchers observed that many, many of the social events that characterized town life had been had just been canceled or done away with. Uh, elderly people start were spending way more time in at their homes. They didn't go out as much. Okay. Anymore. There was more violence in the schoolyard, you know, fights and things. There was just aggression abounded more in the schoolyard. Um, and uh, yeah, and like I say, they were, uh, uh, they singled out literacy actually, which I find interesting because literacy is a tricky thing. It's tricky learning how to read. Yeah, you know, yeah. before it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, and um, but all of a sudden kids would come home from school, and they were watching TV, and so there wasn't as much focus being placed on learning how to read, and 
things like that. So, hmm. so I grew up, you know, hearing about the town's name was McBride, uh, McBride, <laughs> BC. It's also the town I was born in. Oh, cool. Because we lived up there when I was a little kid. Uh, but I, we didn't live in the same town. It's just the town had the nearest hospital to our town. So, mm -hmm. um, but I heard these stories, and I th and they made an impact on me. Like, wow, the just the introduction of a technology can radically rearrange and change the fabric and architecture of mm. a human community. Yeah. And I would say the mental and educational capacities of, of its children. Hmm. So that was kind of how I started thinking about this. The other moment I would say was when I was discerning my vocation to mm -hmm. be a religious, to be whether to, to choose consecrated life for my life. And to do that, I had left Canada and I'd gone overseas and had lived in um, a house of discernment in Rome, Italy for two years. And while I was there, I had, um, I kind of threw my cell phone away and uh, didn't really use digital media. Kind of for two years, I was off it, uh, except for maybe writing papers for school on a computer and exchanging some emails with home, with Canada mm -hmm. from there. Yeah. But other than that, life, I went from living in a digital way to going back to the analog way hmm. of, um, I wrote letters. Uh, it was a house, a time of, of uh, balance between prayer, study, work, um, hikes, excursions. Like it was kind of, it was, it was a refreshing couple yeah, of years. Sounds kind of idyllic actually. But normal too, like what should be normal, kind of human, hmm. a human way of living. But yeah, it's kind of disappearing in the rearview mirror for a lot of mm -hmm. individuals and yeah, families. Yeah, what was once normal for such a long time is now um, deemed almost romantic in many ways. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, anyways, maybe a topic for another day, but... Yeah, or not, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, because, well, it was, it was precisely during those two years, which happened to be the years 2006 to 2008, that I think one of those cultural quantum leaps took place mm -hmm. in, in the world. That's the iPhone, correct? Correct. Yes. Our cell phones became smartphones, which meant that the internet went from being a desk, pretty much a desktop oh, yes. uh, portal to being with us 24-7 mm -hmm. and changed how we think, how we operate, how we behave in many, many different ways. But, but I had skipped that because I was in this kind of religious community, you might say, and came back to Canada to join the Jesuits, to join religious life in our novitiate in Montreal. And I could tell right away that my home country had changed, the culture had changed in those hmm. two years. Just, you, you'd see it in behaviors on the streets or in buildings and on escalators or sitting at restaurants or um, just the way people were now kind of outsourcing things that they may have used to have just thought of themselves or committed to memory or shared with their peers socially. People were whipping out their phones all the time to check things, always checking things on their phone. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one thing. And then the other thing that arose in those two years was social media. Yes. So Facebook, etc., mm -hmm. which became such a defining influence in people's lives. So that made me think, because I had also learned how to pray, because uh, you, <laughs> you have to pray to be a religious, mm -hmm. uh, when I was over in Rome. One does hope that the religious pray. Uh, one hopes, one hopes, <laughs> yeah. Well, we, 
they, we, we certainly try and get a lot of practice at the start. And um, it, it very quickly became apparent to me that there was that tension between your capacity to not recite prayer. Anyone can do that, but you know what I mean, kind of the going inward and meditating on scripture, say, mm -hmm. was a capacity that was um, somehow truncated or was somehow in tension with, at least, um, the mindset that spending time on social media mm -hmm. was inducing. So. Even the capacity for what um, some sociologists are calling uh, deep work, um, where you get into this space um, and you're terribly focused. Um, I find for myself, if I've been on the internet all day and then I go home in the evening, I, I don't have the capacity for deep work anymore. Um, whereas if I'm usually away from technology for the day, um, I come home and I can actually enter into a space where I can really focus mm -hmm. on a particular subject, assuming my kids will let me be. Um, uh, you know, if there's a an emergency diaper blowout, then that's very difficult. Yeah, but that's deep work too. Oh uh, yes, it is deep work. It's very deep. Um, <laughs> perhaps too deep. Um, okay, um, so it sounds like um, when we actually look at the term, like the medium is the message, um, and we're applying it to, well, one could call it the smartphone, the smartphone revolution, connected that with the internet revolution. What is the message? would you say, that is being put forward in these mediums? They have been commercialized now, mm. both the technology, both the hardware and the software, mm. and engineered from top to bottom to be addictive, mm. to command your time and attention, because that's how they monetize themselves. That's how they make money. Yeah. So you're the message. Oh. You're the product. Mm. Uh, there's a saying, you know, if, if um, uh, the more like free or free of charge uh, a software is or a platform is that's being offered to you, uh, the more it means you're the product mm. because that's how they're capitalizing. That's how they're yeah. making money. They're selling you to advertisers, essentially. Mm. The hidden cost. Yeah. Yeah. Your browsing habits. It is so sophisticated now that they know, now the they, when I say they, it's not that there's people watching you. Uh, it's too vast for that. There's billions of people using it. But what these very sophisticated algorithms are doing is me constantly measuring what it is that every, every user is looking at. They can measure the amount of seconds you spent, even if you didn't click on things. Yes. Looking at a particular what advertisement. What you paid attention to. I've noticed yeah. that. Yeah, which is why you get those recurring advertisements after a while. Mm -hmm. Same product or similar products. If you, uh, yeah, I mean, God help you if you actually clicked on something, because then you're, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll see it for, for weeks, possibly. Yeah, 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 that's right. So how they've done it is through very sophisticated um, uh, knowing what triggers your dopamine reactions, mm -hmm. literally your pleasure, uh, chemi pleasure chemical in your brain. Uh, it's the same chemical that happens when you when a person is using drugs, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the most pleasurable human activities involve dopamine generally. Mm -hmm. And so, what many of the early neurological studies have demonstrated with with internet use is that it's causing short bursts of dopamine. Every click, every ping, every like that you get, every 
all these signals are designed at a very, very almost animal level hmm. to keep us focused and fixated hmm. on it. And, but like all drugs, it's a quick surge or spike of pleasure, but then it leaves us emptier than we were before, so it leaves us seeking more and more and more of these things, these tiny little affirmations. Mm. You know? yeah. You're important, you matter, there's someone interested in you, someone likes you, someone likes you, someone likes mm. you. That's the Facebook trap, yeah. That's Facebook, yeah. And with Instagram, it's a little heart, mm. which is interesting, right? That's how you like a, a post, is you click heart, so a user is being told, I love this, I love this, I yeah. love this. Well, there you go. Even like if the medium is the message there, one's a thumbs up, the other one's a heart. Um, why are those being chosen? Um, what, uh, what message is being sent there? I see. So um, it, another thing that I would possibly add to that is even having, say, the cell phone around, and this is mediating all sorts of information to you, for example, the ding. Um, the question is, is like this is uh, one, one student I was talking with this year, um, he challenged, he, he, he showed me his phone and he actually had turned it to black and white. He turned off all the red notifications that you get whenever, um, mm. you know, you go to your home screen and there's that little chat bubble thing and there's usually a red one, two, three, four above it, yeah. kind of notifying you how many messages. He had turned that off. And then he also turned off the ding um, and even the buzz uh, for whenever a text comes in or something. Because he said, I began to realize that um, this was no longer a tool, it was actually managing me. Um, and I realized, yeah, well, that's what it's doing. It's basically making demands on your time, saying, I, I am a part of your life. Make me a part of your, my, your life. That was the message of the approach. So I, I turned my screen to black and white and all the rest as well, and I've been finding it very helpful because it turned into a tool very fast. But um, another thing I've kind of noticed is um, with the access to this medium, um, there's a, almost this subtle question of instant gratification. As in, if you want to know something now, the medium of Google will communicate to you readily and fast, especially with data and all the rest. Um, and so um, I find in myself, I get taught subtly the lesson that um, everything's at my fingertips and I can get it now. And if it's not able, I'm not able to get it now, um, there's something wrong. Um, that work can be a bit of an issue in that regard too. So I've kind of seen that in myself as well. Um, subtle things like that. So uh, in terms of like, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on well, that. Well, there's, there's a, I think a great danger there, actually. Um, there, there was a great book that came out uh, about 10 years ago now, but it's still kind of evergreen. It's called The Shallows, okay. uh, What the Internet is Doing to Your Brain. I'm familiar with The Shallows, the movie, which is all about sharks and stuff no, like that. No, yeah, uh, no. This is, is more this a, about the digital sharks. That oh, are, the digital sharks, yeah, okay. Th that are uh, preying on our attention. And uh, it, it was, but it was written by a English professor, Nicholas Carr is the author, C-A-R-R. And he was really the first to start noticing the effects of his own Google and, and internet use on his cognitive ability. Mm -hmm. Namely, that he, he was finding it harder and harder to sustain his attention to read books, hmm. to read stories even. And of course, the same thing was happening to his students. So he set out to compile what's, what was the data coming in from neurological research and anthropological research. And around the year 2010, the internet was um, 10, 15 years old, at least in terms of its ubiquity and spread. 
so studies were just starting to come out around that time. And he said, uh, well, one of the main things he said that I remember in this book was how, we, how memory has been um, uh, commandeered. Hmm. And what we think of as a tool to assist us in our research of facts and information. Has actually replaced our memory. It's replaced our memory. Hmm. Can we remember the things we Googled? Not so well. And why would you need to if it's constantly why there? Why would you need to? Yeah. yeah. And, well, he proposes a few reasons why you might need to. Why memory <laughs> is a good thing. Yes. For why personal knowledge is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Not just having good information skills, access skills. Because wisdom, wisdom depends upon knowledge. Hmm. And if we want to become wise people, we, we need to have acquired a certain amount of knowledge, and that requires memory. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I think I may have even heard of that book. It's, uh, th those themes have been coming up um, in a lot of conversations I have with friends on this topic. So um, it would appear then there's, um, there's quite a few dangers um, when we're trekking these waters of uh, digital media, these digital sharks, if you will. Um, consumerism plays into it. Um, the fragmenting of attention is another uh, message in the medium. Um, uh, this over-reliance, maybe perhaps on, on other sources other than one's knowledge and wisdom, maybe even personal judgment of conscience even at times too. Maybe that gets thrown into there as well. There seems to be a lot of like negative questions um, that are brought up here. Um, on the other hand, um, there is something maybe that is good in the message at times too. Um, I can't help but kind of bring it to that. I like trying to find the things that are good to be affirmed as well. Um, which is, uh, and it's funny because there's another fellow uh, named Walter Ong, uh, who, was a, who was a Jesuit priest, and he actually studied under Marshall McLuhan. I just learned that this morning. Um, which, he was also very interested in communi communication. And what he did is he had actually studied the connection between oral cultures and written cultures for a time. Um, he, being a theologian, uh, was very interested in the spoken word. Um, and so he talked a lot about the advantages of oral culture, um, this interpersonal dialogical communication. He thought that was a really, really good thing. He actually had some very um, strong criticisms of when the printing press came into focus. Because he thought whenever you actually have the printing press and each person is reading a book excessively to themselves, um, it tends to be a much more of an individualist strain or emphasis. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you, you can, you, we even have this trope in our culture, like the bookworm, who's also always off on their own, reading about life, but not actually doing an adventure in life necessarily. Now, um, you know, I've got nothing against bookworms. I think we need more of them, actually. Um, but so, like, he kind of talked about even there, where the written word can sometimes have these negative connotations. In fact, he, he thought that it actually led to this more confrontational vision of seeing the other. Um, books tend to give you a large, large sense of control as well. So when he saw the rise of like modern communications, um, he thought that this was possibly a good supplement to written culture, which is here to stay in many ways. Um, he thought that it possibly presented much more of an experiential way of receiving information, um, possibly the recovery of a symbolic um, kind of depiction of events as well. 
Um, I always thought that that was an interesting other perspective. So when we say the medium is the message, it seems to me that this can be often ambivalent. Um, there's actually multiple messages sometimes happening in a medium, and that it almost sways one way, um, but it has elements of the other. Um, kind of like every good lie is a half-truth. Um, now, I'm not saying digital culture is a lie necessarily, but I think that there are lies mixed into it. Um, kind of like, uh, that's something that for me that kind of balances the conversation. What do you think about that? Have you, I think you've, you, you told me before the podcast that you've encountered Walter Ong. Um, how, what do you think of that possible perspective? Well, Father Walter Ong, the theologian and the communications scholar, was well aware that um, there, there is an analytical difference between the medium and its message and the message. Okay but would have, as a theologian, seen in Christ himself the perfect merger, confluence of the medium and the message, mm. right? As Christians, what, Oh yeah, no, that, that makes lots of sense. What is the message? Well, it's Jesus Christ. It's faith in Jesus Christ that saves. Um, what was the medium of this? Well, it was his incarnation mm. and, and then his, his crucifixion and death. So, um, we're also a people of the word, and, and um, Wong was very fascinated by the phenomenon of the word and how from our Jewish um, spiritual ancestors, Christ is coming to us as also as the word. So he's the word made flesh, but continues to be mediated to us through the printed word, essentially, mm, yeah. which is sometimes proclaimed verbally and orally in our liturgies, but is also read you know, personally and privately mm -hmm. as well. So, yeah, I think he had a generally positive approach to it. Uh, I'm with McLuhan on this, and I think Wang, Wang Ong would agree, Father Walter Ong. Every new medium um, is doing a couple things. Mm. So Marshall McLuhan had this uh, very clever device to met to in which we could discern. I get, it's a discernment tool, really. Mm, interesting. For every new technology that comes along. And Ignatian using discernment, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. But it was called as Tetrad. Okay. Because it had four questions that you ask of every new technology. Hmm. Yeah. Because his, I mean, his, his main understanding was that new technologies are so compelling to us. They practically sell themselves yeah. on the basis of the convenience that they're going to offer us. Yeah. Get the new edition of this. It's got these new and improved features, mm -hmm. right? The iPhone X. Lining iPhone up to get XX. the new iPhone. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 exactly. So he's saying, okay, fine, but, but don't, you wanna also be, don't you also want to see what it might be changing or eclipsing or replacing? Hmm. So the Tetrad was four questions. The first question was, um, what is the new technology enhancing. Hmm. A new tech, new piece of tech is always going to enhance something, and that's usually its appeal mm -hmm. to us. Yeah. Number two, what's it obsolescing? Because hmm. usually, like the television obsolesced the radio, ex yes, except certainly. in the car. Not 100%, we still listen to the radio, but what had formerly been the ascendant and dominant technology um, finally like lost out to the new technology. Yeah. Uh, the telegraph changed the world when it came out. Uh, you made the world a smaller place, but the telephone obsolesced the telegraph, right? Yeah, that's right. So what about broadcast television? You know, when I was a kid, people had TVs in their living rooms, 
and watched broadcast TV. You had rabbit ears, or some people had a satellite dish and an aerial, things like that. And you had a certain number of channels. That's been completely obsolesced today by, uh, by streaming digital content. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the way people watch movies and consume entertainment now. So what does it enhance, but what does it also obsolesce? Mm -hmm. uh, what does it retrieve? That's an interesting mm, one. Yeah, that's really interesting. He thought that a new technology, even if it's new and never been seen before in its current form, might be retrieving a way of thinking or being that had formerly been the case. Hmm. So we've got some funny examples of that, how the automobile as a form of technology that has now risen in the 20th century to be just such a defining piece of tech for yeah. our lives, uh, obsolesced the horse and carriage or the horse or, you know, it enhanced speed though. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it retrieved, he had this funny image of formerly, in former times, you had armies of people going about their business, usually warlike business, dressed in metal armor. Hmm. It's a bit of an oddball comparison, but he's like, it had been a long time since you had had hmm. uh, a people who would go off on long journeys, sometimes, en masse. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the automobile, and it retrieves a few other things as well. The fourth question, though, is also quite interesting. It's, what does the technology flip into, turn okay. into, when you push it to its to its limits. Oh, so how bad does it get, or how good does it get when you push it to its limits? Mm, or? He doesn't even make a judgment on that. He just says, okay. what does it turn into? Hmm. What will it turn into? So the computer, the internet, um, or the, let's take the phone within living memory. It was just a phone. Then it became a portable phone, a cell phone, and then it's not really a cell phone any longer when it's become a smartphone. It's flipped into this new creation called a smartphone, mm. which is so much more. It's the, the whole internet at our fingertips. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so not even com just communication technologies, but I don't know, something like as basic as central heating in our homes. Like we can't imagine life before central heating. The idea, having a furnace in your basement, yeah. pumping warm air to all the rooms. Like, it's hard for us to imagine how revolutionary that was. Yeah. And it was such a convenience now that just society's just embraced it completely. Mm -hmm. But what did it obsolesce? <laughs> Again, these aren't value judgments so much as just good questions to ask for discernment. Mm. So we embrace the convenience of the new. Are we losing anything by embracing this new technology, something human? Well, and maybe, and maybe that, that question of um, even the homes, uh, the furnace, you know, in the yeah. basement, what was before that? Maybe the wood stove in the heart of the home. Yeah. The living so room the and the fire. So the peripheries were cold, so the family would gather yeah. around, the, exactly. around the, uh, the wood stove, which therefore there was, what it did, what it brought was bonding, whereas the furnace brought convenience. You can go anywhere, but then there was much more encouragement, if you will, to be a part doing your own thing or the something the like that. The medium is the message. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to think about that one for a while. That's really intriguing. So um, that's a helpful uh, way to look at um, uh, various media of whatever kind. Um, 
I guess if you were to have any like practical suggestions to anyone on the ground um, going forward, trying to discern their relationship with, say, digital media nowadays, it's kind of the big one I have in my mind yeah. for this podcast and this audience. You know, um, do you have any practical suggestions about how to go about discerning one's relationship with it? And um, I guess applying the tetrad is a really good one. Just um, kind of doing that reflection. Yeah. Well, uh, for one thing, we have to have perspective. We, we need a certain amount of distance to make good judgments about mm. technology. McLuhan would talk about uh, the importance of anti-environment because normally we're immersed in the environment of the technology and it's hard for us to get kind of an, a bird's eye view of it. So we need a bit of distance. So a bit of detachment from it is a good thing. Mm. So one way of being detached is to just inform oneself. Uh, that book, The Shallows, I know it's changed people's lives. I know people who have claimed and credited it for being an utter game changer in terms of their relationship to, to digital technology, The Shallows. Another thing would be, I know it's a bit ironic, but to watch on Netflix <gasps> the documentary <laughs> film, uh, The Social Dilemma. Yes. Uh, which is That's a, very, a very unique one. Yes, you've seen it? Uh, no, I've heard a lot. They, they actually get a lot of the creators of social media and digital media. Like, not just people commenting on these things, but the creators themselves coming out and talking about yeah. what they did. Yeah. Many of these former chief engineers or vice presidents of, you know, all the major, they're, they're now feeling a lot of regret because they all, they, they all, many of them went to the same school, actually. It's, hmm. it's very interesting once you start burrowing into it. Uh, Stanford University in California has an institute uh, that is dedicated to understanding what psychologically motivates people. Hmm. And many of the engineers of all those major Twitter, Instagram, all the major social media platforms are alumni of this one institute, which is kind of the world's leading think tank, um, you know, place of study of how to get people to do things. Mm. And now they're feeling remorse, and some of them are spending their professional lives going around and trying to teach people a different kind of literacy now, by which they largely mean cut way back mm. on these technologies because yeah, they're designed. Yeah, a bit of a retreat almost. Yeah, yeah. So for me, what's been helpful, some little things that I've done, I just, times when I realized I was just going onto Facebook far too many times in a day or on it for too long was to de-dependicize myself on it. Mm -hmm. uh, so what have I done? I, I've uh, just made a decision not to, be, not to engage too much. So I'm, personally, I'm on a lot of the social media platforms because just professionally, I mean, they're not, they're not all bad. Like Father Walter Ong would say that they're, 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 the media are all different ways of proclaiming the word, too. Mm. And if people are spending a lot of their time there, we should be there too. The church should be there, and yeah. there's many good church examples. Church in the marketplace, yeah. Yes, yeah, and you know. The Areopagus. Word on fire, and there's just so many other, so many good uh, initiatives that are attempting to preach the gospel and preach truth in a very winsome and effective way uh, mm -hmm. on those platforms. But to do so, I think you have to be somewhat disciplined. And uh, for, yeah, for my part, I, uh, Rather than relying on Facebook to tell me the birthdays of my friends and loved ones, hmm. you know how Facebook tells you the birthdays of the day. That's right. Um, but that was outsourcing that knowledge. That means I didn't know the birthdays of my friends and family. Hmm. So uh, I just decided 
that's one less thing I'm going to depend on Facebook for. Mm. So I just bought one of those perpetual calendars. It's, you flip them once a month, but you see a whole month's worth of birthdays or anniversaries or ordination days, as the case may be. And, <laughs> and I just look at it. I'm looking at it for a whole month, so I get to see people's mm. real. And uh, so that was one way. Another way was not to use my phone as a watch. Oh, that's a really good one. So I went back to wearing a watch, uh, and that that contributed big time to to hmm. decreasing the amount of times I looked at my phone because I wasn't just looking at the time; I was looking at oh, I'm looking at the time, but I might as well quickly check on Your messages email or and, Facebook. Yeah. One thing along those lines with the phone that I found super helpful for myself was I actually got rid of my email and my mm -hmm. Facebook on my phone. So I kind of, like the smartphone has all this technology for all these things and I'm Christian, know thyself. You know, you have to know where your, where your issues are. Um, but for me, as soon as I cut out Facebook and my email, um, my phone became far more and more manageable. Um, and I became very intentional about when I came to my computer, my workstation, that that was when I was gonna check those things. And in fact, at work, I don't even have Facebook on my computer. I've, it, it's forgotten the password conveniently, <laughs> and I don't remember my password, but at home it's always logged in, so, yeah. um, you good know. On, good on you. So, you know, those are little things I found helpful, too. Yeah. Um, that actually connects to, if you notice you're having struggling with particular areas of a particular medium, you create areas of resistance, even, um, like in order to get to that particular app on your phone, um, I put my email browser like four or five spaces over, in my iPhone, so it actually, there's resistance. I actually have more time to think about when I hit that browser, it's like, oh, actually, I don't even need to do it so that I can turn it off kind of thing. And So there's a few really interesting tricks like that. So yeah, thank you very much, Father John, for um, giving us uh, a bit of an introduction to the concept of media literacy, um, and the medium is the message. Um, I'm sure everyone who's listening on this medium um, of the podcast uh, will uh, greatly appreciate what you had to say. And um, I know for myself, I, I found that, um, you know, every time we talk about this, there's always something new I learn um, in there as well. Mm. So hopefully we'll have you on for another podcast sometime soon. Yeah, it'd be great to come back sometime. Yeah, hopefully really soon and uh, talk more about uh, the, ver the various you know, parts of the world of media. Um, yeah, and, you know, St. Ignatius of Loyola had this phrase, agere contra, mm. which was Latin for to act against. And so it, it just meant if one, one was becoming aware of the, maybe what used to be called the occasion of sin, or still is called that. Yeah. But if there was some um, behavior or circumstance in one's life that led to a rabbit hole of, uh, of behaviors that were, that were not healthy in the end, that one could overcome those by uh, building up, you know, as you say, uh, resistance, but also to act against the tendency by maybe taking a temporarily exaggerated stance in the opposite direction. So that's how we overcome bad habits and formulate new good habits. So, mm -hmm. so internet fasts, internet times out, um, Lenten observances, you know, all those sorts of things contribute to creating the anti-environment to have proper perspective and uh, also create space for prayerful relationship with God and with, with neighbor. So. Mm -hmm.
Well, um, once again, thank you very much, Father John, for all your wisdom on the matter and your vast knowledge um, on the on the subject. And uh, thank you to everyone who is tuning in with us um, today. And uh, we hope that uh, the rest of your day is good and holy and focused. And uh, we look forward to hearing you again on Little Wayward Podcast. Like, share, and subscribe on YouTube, and you can find Little Wayward Podcast on any major podcast platform.